from the north citizens of earth welcome to forum b today we have a long lost guest back and in a two-part show we entertain scenario thinking around disclosure of how the greatest story ever denied would come to pass in our postmodern world and examining it from different angles we also review some of the previous attempts the last 20 years, as well as their backlashes. Some key topics touch upon are the classified space program, the new Space Force, to the Stars Academy, and the fake secret space program conferences. Further, we put everything into contemporary geopolitical context and rip the mask of the growing totalitarian empire threatening freedom in every corner of our world. And we end our founded and substantiated speculation orgy with thought experiments of how far the covert activities may have gone, also in a literal spatial sense. To do this adequately, we cannot use any old guide. Indeed, only few are equipped to conduct such a tour without slotting off into the abyss. So I'm happy to announce that our Sherpa for this occasion is none other than Richard Michael Dolan, the leading expert in the study of the history of unknown aerial phenomena and the scholar who coined the crucial term breakaway civilization. Hailing from Brooklyn, he was a finalist for a Rhodes Scholarship, graduated from Alfred University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts in English and History in 1984. He then earned a Master of Arts in History from the University of Rochester in 95, where he studied US Cold War strategy, European history and international diplomacy and finally received his certificate in political ideologies from Exeter College in Oxford, United Kingdom. Dolan is renowned for being a rare, sober and sensical voice in the field, not only presenting grounded facts, but also skilled interpretation and analysis of the material. As a genuine researcher, he obtains primary information from government, military and intel sources, national archives, and interviews with leading figures in the national security community, including five-star generals and admirals, highest-level intel officers, world-famous scientists, briefers of presidents, and even some working within covert cover-up operations. He is a regular featured speaker with countless appearances in all the big conferences such as International UFO Congress, has delivered repeated presentations at the National Press Club in DC and correspondingly been interviewed or contributed to innumerable broadcasting all over the world including TV such as BBC, films such as Black Knight Satellite The Untold Story, newspapers such as Washington Post, magazines and journals such as Newsbreak, radio such as Coast to Coast AM and of course podcasts such as, well, ourself. 
Since 2012, Richard Dolan has hosted his own talk show at KGRA Radio called The Richard Dolan Show, airing live every Monday. And is currently a documentary series running on Gaia Television on the history of false flag operations, which he also hosts. Together with his lovely wife Tracy Garbutt, he offers weekly live stream programs called Intelligent Disclosure at his YouTube channel, as well as audio podcasts at his website called richarddolanmembers.com. He's also running his own book publishing company, Richard Dolan Press, formerly known as Keyhole Publishing, where he actively releases innovative books by authors from around the world. As far as books concerns, his series called UFOs and the National Security State are highly acclaimed groundbreaking works which provide the most factually complete and accessible narrative of the UAP subject available anywhere, already becoming a classic and a must-have for any serious student in the field. As the preeminent historian of the subject, Richard has for the past two decades been a dedicated student of all things related to the phenomenon, steadily expanding his interests within the subject from his initial focus on government documents and cover-up to be that deep space crafts, abductions, terrestrial sightings and encounters of any degree futuristic and exotic technology, AI and biotechnology, ETs and exobiology, the culture and paradigm impact, sects and conjobs, metaphysical and paranormal aspects, implants and medicinal consequences, mainstream media relations, destruction of liberties and rights, and so on. There is simply no aspect of the phenomenon he won't touch, but always with an evidence-based and scholarly approach. Today he will share some of his brilliant abilities as an analyst, examining angles of science, politics, classification, possible non-terrestrial involvement, and what all this means for our civilization, especially the implications of the end of secrecy. All this covered also in his brilliant book called AD After Disclosure, co-authored with TV producer Bryce Sable, which is the first ever analysis of how the secrecy might end and what implications it would have for the future. Engage. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thank you, Al. I'm very happy to be back. Oh, but not half as happy as I am to <laughs> finally <laughs> get you back on. Hi, good to connect with you again. Oh, my God. It's been maybe f up to five years. Has it actually been five years since we did our last interview? Could be. It's been a while. Could be. I think so. Uh, I was just checking, and I believe our last interview was in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, it's... Good to have you back. Yeah, Good to be back. Absolutely. And hello to your wife. She's in the background somewhere. <laughs> she's she's actually upstairs. I'm in my office, oh, but yeah. she told me to tell you hello. Okay, great. 
So uh, yeah, you've been much more effective after she came into your life. So kudos. <laughs> oh my God, I got very lucky with her. Yeah, you did. Thank you. you. Did. Yeah, I appreciate. I, I, a good friend of mine. He's um, a big supporter of you, actually. Uh, even one of my video makers. So they keep updating me on what's going on uh, over at your place. Oh, I see. Mm. Well, that's that's nice. Yes. Thank you. By the way, where in um, New York do you live again? Well, I'm from New York City. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where I was born, and I grew up in that area. But I live in I live in the state of New York, New York State. So that's um, up north of New York City, closer to Canada, actually, than oh, New York wow. City. So I'm just I'm in the city of Rochester. <clears throat> oh, that's right, so, Rochester. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how is the corona hitting uh, you up there? We're fine, honestly. We're fine. Because um, it was very bad uh, further south. Uh, you know, closer to Westchester. Correct. Is that what that's you right. call? As you yeah. get down, Westchester is very close to New York City, yeah. and that whole region was hit very, very hard. I think it's now starting to calm down. I haven't kept track of the last uh, the last couple of weeks in New York City. Mm. But I think it's definitely now of I keep hearing that there's supposed to be a second wave of this uh, Florida. Yeah, but not until autumn, I think. I beg your pardon? What? Not until autumn, fall. Yeah. So there, actually, I didn't hear you quite properly, but it's. uh, (laughs) It's not yet the second wave. I am. I am so done with the lockdown. Yeah. I am so done. It. Well, it should be over yesterday. Yeah, okay. I can uh, tease you with the fact that three days ago we opened hundred percent up. Good. The last things were were fully up, but we had a very early lockdown that helped. Right. I supported doing a lockdown early mm. when we had other information. When we were told that this was. 10 times more deadly than a flu and two to three times more easily transmissible. I, uh, working on that information, said, you know, we need to, to deal with it and let's just, let's lock ourselves down for a short period of time. Mm. But uh, I don't think anyone expected, I certainly did not expect for this to last. Now it's like four months, almost three, four months. Mm. It's just far too much. It's, I think the, the cure is far more damaging than the disease. Yeah, my opinion. Yeah, there, there may not even be a vaccine after all. So, uh, right, exactly. But if you look at the numbers uh, instead of the hysteria, you'll notice it's still not past the most aggressive flu. You're right. The most aggressive flu kills uh, every year up to I think it's like eight hundred thousand or something. Yeah, that sounds right. Right. Yeah, I just checked the numbers, and we are, I think we're at 600 now. So Yeah, if, something like that. This is comparable to the H1N1 swine flu of about 12 years ago. Mm. It's about the same. That that I was looking up the numbers on that, and they actually don't have an accurate or precise death total of that, even now, after all these years. It's an estimate of oh, wow. as low as 150 or 200,000, as high as 600,000. So this would be on the high end yeah of h1n1 which you know nothing got shut down as we all remember yeah no. 12 years ago we went right through it yeah i mean uh, i i try not to be too conspiratorial because it's so easy to Good. jump to con- it's like that's going to be the last thing you go to when all other options are exhausted right yeah 
But in this case, <laughs> I, I don't blame anyone if it looks like oh. there's some kind of agenda behind it. Yeah. Because it's so weird that, uh, and I was in Milan when it broke out. Uh, do you know Milan, yes. Uh, Italy? Yes, I do indeed. I was there once. That's where it came to Europe. Right. I was there when it happened. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I think I had it, actually. Um, it's hard to tell. but I um, wonder if uh, Tracy and I got it, actually, back in February. We were both sick for about a week. Mm. She had a lot of the more explicit symptoms. So she had the cough. Right. Uh, we were both we both felt weak for a few days. She got it a little bit worse, but we were both we both were sick, mm. and uh, we both suspect that we may have gotten it and just you know got through it. Did did you even know about it when it happened? Oh yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I remembered uh, learning about it back in January. We were having a vacation. I was in Hawaii for the first time in my life. Oh, wow. Great. And was hearing about it then. Um, so it was definitely something, but did not expect uh, no one. I don't think anyone expect the global shutdown. No. And so it's really something. Yeah. I just want to uh, let our listeners know that uh, on the agenda today is discussing disclosure. Uh, but, Wonderful. Uh, we're going to... Uh, chat a little generally now for 20 minutes uh, on account of uh, it's maybe going to be aired at your end. Great. So after about 20 minutes, we'll, we'll turn, Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, we'll turn into the uh, topic at hand. Second, I, I don't know if she told you, but uh, I want to discuss AD with you, that book. Oh, yes. I, I do recall that now. Yes, that's fine. Yeah. But it's going to be a very extensive. I mean, the book is going to be like the baseline. Yes. But when you wrote it, conditions were completely different. For example, Correct. and I'm going to touch this uh, in the second part. We'll take a break after an hour, one and a half. All right, good. And so uh, in the second part, I want to discuss especially also to the stars because you get came out with that book before that. And it's so funny because I had yes. Peter Lavender on w when that broke. And so I got the advantage to really cross-examinate him because uh, I noticed this aggressive um, uh, herd mentality from people. Absolutely. And, and oh, you must ask him this. And oh, okay, okay, okay. So I asked him, uh, I've had Peter on many times, so he, he's comfortable. So he, he's not threatened by even me asking critical questions. So we went through the entire list. And I uh, sometimes I pontificate uh, after the interview. I add like 20 minutes of my own rant. I see. Actually, I do rant also during the interview. Oh, that's good. <laughs> if, if I'm engaged, just a warning there. You can do a good rant. That's fine. <laughs> but here's the thing. I did my value judgment on it. And then you came out with your article shortly after. And it was like identical take. Uh -huh. Yeah. And... No one else, Richard, as I have been able to see, has had that approach to uh, the TSA project as you've had yes. and also I've had. Everyone else is like, it's like an either or thing. Right. So it's, uh, and I th I th I'm so amazed because it's such a basic, I mean, we're not geniuses for having that attitude. It's just a basic measured logical attitude Correct. so something is is i mean pe people are going crazy so we have to discuss that stuff too i will gladly go over that with you it, yeah. it actually really has bothered me a lot to see the the trashing of ttsa by so many people reflexively 
Mm. And I think it's a, it signifies a real problem in our field. It does, and it will influence, and that's the problem, and that's also why it's related here, not only because that was an, a small attempt for the closure, but also because, it, like I'm going to argue, it's going to influence all sorts of potential disclosures in the future. So, um, yeah. so we can't avoid it. That's right. Yeah. Now, last time I had you on, back then you were hot with the, well, you still are, but with the concept of the breakaway civilization, which has taken off since that time. And <laughs> Indeed. We have this phenomenon, we may discuss it a little today, uh, the fake secret space program thing that came in the aftermath of oh that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> By the way, yes. my listeners are belong to the more rational specter of the audience of these things, and they are so fond of the way you've handled that entire thing. Appreciate that. Especially kudos to you when you were like alone in enemy territory. What, what It was some kind of conference um, oh my! Yeah, you've probably been on several. Are you thinking of the Mufon, Mufon symposium, perhaps uh, in 2017. Yeah, I think, and and all the bad guys, all the corn men were there, plus you, <laughs> and you you raised uh, your voice and told it exactly as it is. My goodness, that takes some balls, man. Well, thank you. Um, we can discuss it, I suppose. I just I feel that in um, in when you're in a public position, which, you know, those of us who, I mean, I am and and you are, that you have really have to make a choice at times when, when the entire crowd seems to be going one way, but you believe strongly that we need to look at a different direction. Hmm. You have to make a decision. And there have been a few times in my career in the UFO field where I, I feel like I've had to do that. But yeah, that was one. That was one. So I'm sure it won't be the last. <laughs> no, but you know what they say. Truth is always a defense. That's right. And it's funny because when you see the masses take off into some kind of trend or meme, you get unsure because it's it's just natural psychology. What's going on here, right? But a, a voice inside you tells you, well, the pendulum will sooner or later swing back. Exactly. And when it swings back, every nobody will say, oh, I was one of the, the circus or the crazy one. No, no, then everybody is on the side of reason, if you see what I mean. I agree. <laughs> like, I, I'll give you, a, a, it's probably a bad analogy, but when America was hysterical about Iraq. Yeah. Uh, after 9-11, right? Everybody yes. was supporting these uh, crazy war efforts. Today, you'll be hard-pressed finding someone who admits to having had that attitude, if you see what I mean. Oh, exactly. Fortunately, there's a public record of a lot of those people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, those people who were not part of the public record, sure, they slink away and retroactively change their opinion all the time. Mm. For me, when I'm uh, faced with some current controversy that the best that I can do is just ask myself what seems to be true and what do I think is going to be the, the verdict 50 years from now after I'm not around what do I think is is true and that's the only judgment that I'm able to make when I'm trying to wade through a dark a dark uh, territory and not really no one really knows sometimes what the exact truth of a situation is but we have to do our best. And uh, you mentioned rational, uh, you have rational listeners, which is wonderful. I feel like the best thing that we're able to do in a subject such as the UFO field, which is a very difficult 
field to study. Hmm. It's difficult for a lot of reasons. And so that the best thing we can do is is be brave and go where the data leaves, leads us. And that means be unafraid to take a radical conclusion if that's what the data says, but also to be guided by actual data, to be guided by information and not by what looks like ego or what looks like fantasy. Um, there's a lot of people in this world who are not good people. There are a lot of people who are actually just out to to um, jump into any field and be opportunists and 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 take advantage of others. And we have to we have to defend against that. Yeah, I feel strong about that. Yeah, but uh, tell me. Uh, and by the way, you said uh, uh, taking a radical view, but where I'm standing, it's uh, it's when the world goes crazy and becomes extreme. Absolutely. And you're still on the balanced side. That That's more kind of what's going on. Because if you look yeah. at the phenomenon we're talking about, yeah. I, I don't think, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and I haven't lived as long as you, although I'm not that far behind you. But mm-hmm. I can't, I can't recall someone getting away with such a stunt as the fake SSP uh, back in the day. Uh, I mean, not yeah. at that level. I mean, you can, for example, you can criticize probably uh, as you did when you were launched onto the scene. You were critical right. about uh, Stephen Greer's approach yeah. because he had this everyone is good uh, thing. Yeah. And and you did it, of course, based on uh, just the plain contents, right? But right. at least Greer... Uh, try to stay connected to, you know, the world of evidence and he tried to make a case and he tried to convince people. Yes, I agree with that. This thing here is just crazy. Uh, I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to deal with this, but I'm going to do this carefully. And the only reason is that there actually are spurious, specious, ridiculous lawsuits that are being served. Right. Uh, I've learned a little bit about them there. They seem to be ridiculous and have zero merit, Mm -hmm. but even so, um, I'm not going to mention any names sure. for that and just for other reasons at this time. But I think everyone knows what we're talking about here. <laughs> and it is true that from I think around 2014, 2015 until about 2017, 2018, our our field of UFOs just went absolutely crazy with this – with a few actual so-called whistleblowers who um, – I, I will have to say just pretended that they were part of a secret space program. And it doesn't mean that there can't possibly be genuine whistleblowers for a secret space program. I think everyone recognizes that this is entirely possible. But the claims that were made were just so absurd, so ridiculous, so self-serving, so uh, clearly out of like a a bad, bad 1950s Hollywood movie yeah. that – it just became a you know ridiculous. So uh, I do remember in 2017 is when it all came to a head. That that movement was riding at its peak, and I was asked for that year, for the first time in many years, to speak at the annual MUFON symposium. Um, I had been, by my own estimation, unofficially banned from MUFON symposium since mm. 2011. I had a whole thing where I spoke. Why was that? Uh, because I I talked explicitly about the need for MUFON to reform itself. And they were, the, the leadership at the time. <laughs> it proved you right. 
<laughs> I, I was right. I'm Obviously. Absolutely, I know that I was right. But um, And there was a big controversy going on at that time. This is in 2011 over op- the opacity of the upper leadership of MUFON. And um, so anyway, I, I, unbeknownst to them, I took out the last 10, 15 minutes of my lecture and I switched gears entirely and talked about how MUFON needed to open up its um, its leadership to fresh ideas and so on and so on. And they were, they were so furious. I got this from several people mm. after the fact that they were – the leader at the time was um, Clifford Clift, who I had been on reasonable terms with Clifford, but I – learned that he was absolutely furious i mean furious like saying dolan will never speak at a at a move on symposium again what an egomaniac when you consider how little they pay you at those things i thought i don't really care i don't need to go is is it a new leadership now i beg your pardon is it a new leadership now yeah so their their new um international director is jan harzan who's someone right. I like very much, and I respect Jan. And so the years had gone by, and Jan, in 2017, asked if I would speak. And I thought, sure, let's mend the fence, and I'll go there. And he actually asked me explicitly to speak about a secret space program. And I had said I, I didn't really want to. I thought I've, I've moved on to other particular areas and I'm interested in understanding a secret space program and I believe that there is one but I I didn't really want to but for him I said that I would well I didn't realize at the time that he was doing an entire theme uh, for MUFON symposium on secret space program and bringing in a lot of people some of whom were legitimate uh, researchers but others who were not legitimate at all and mm. when I learned this months later before we went on I called him And um, I'll just say I really was very unhappy and, mm. and and said, I don't know what you think you're doing here. And he said, well, if you want to back out of that panel, because I have you on a panel with all of these different people. And I said, no, I'm staying on this panel, actually. Nice. I'm going to do this. And that's when I did a couple of interviews with Bill Ryan about this and the whole – this that was actually the first salvo by any – actual researcher in the UFO field against these fake SSP claims, I, I think. So yeah, I was kind of out on my own there, but I thought some something has got to change here. This is ridiculous. This yeah. has become absurd. Yeah. Um, I will mention David Wilcock, who I'm not really afraid of anything David's going to do here, and I'm just going to say he was one of the main people promoting this, this truly absolutely fake narrative of a secret space program yeah. I'd say this about David and that's that if he had stuck to being a alternative science journalist which he actually has some right. abilities in I agree with that it would look much better today absolutely agree but he he sunk himself nobody will take him seriously in the future they're not even doing it now but there's still this hardcore cult But eventually that will disintegrate. But uh, you mentioned Ryan, so funny. Yeah, I've discussed this with Ryan, and uh, as I see it, the th- three culprits here that made this monster. Uh, one is obviously Ryan, who uh, mm. uh, launched this uh, suicide rocket. Right. The, the other one, what's his name again? It's the Gaia TV chap, uh, alchemist. You know, alchemist and Gaia. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. He he was running. He was the one hiring these people for Gaia TV. Oh well, well Jay uh, Jay Weidner or Weidner? Yeah, Jay Weidner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you didn't know he's written books about alchemy. <laughs> well, I know Jay, and uh, yeah. I actually. I've had a number of conversations with him, and yes, I remember that now. Yeah. So Jay is the second culprit, and both of them have come out doing mea culpas, as they should. But uh, it shows they have uh, at least some integrity. Uh, They were taken for a ride. At least Ryan was. Uh, I don't know if Jay were having dollars in his eyes, but but at least he uh, eventually he realized, oh, my God, I'm Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) But the third culprit, who has gone completely under the radar for any blame, is he's probably a friend of yours? Uh, he's invited you on. He, by the way, you should you should is who? I want to hear. Yeah, you should do more podcasts than classical radio because we reach much more people. But he does classical radio. He, he's the guy who goes from coast to coast uh, as a host. What's his name? Oh, Jimmy Church. Yes, Jimmy Church is. Uh, oh yes, I agree. Big to blame here. Totally agree. I've told this to yeah. Jimmy myself. Okay. I had many conversations with him during all of those years right. where I, I mean, I'm friends with him, but I would call him up and I would actually yell at him on the phone and tell him, <laughs> can't do what you're doing. But he doesn't care because it's all about the numbers. He, and he had a hard time. It, I don't want to go on too much about this. I think, I think he had to go through his own process of like learning the truth. Yeah. And I think, I think he, I don't think he was, um, Anything other than sincerely thinking that this could be true. I think that's actually the case with Jimmy. I think he he I think he believed those stories. Okay. Uh or at least he was giving them serious consideration. And I would I would call him and and make fun. <laughs> I would yeah. constantly yeah. make fun of the stories and of him for believing them, but he stuck to it for a long time. So I I like Jimmy and you know, I think he does a lot of good with what he does, but it's true. He really did promote um, a lot of the f- untrue SSP, Secret Space Program narratives. That's just how it Yeah, he, he had a big reach back then. and um, He still does. He still does, but it's uh, it's the older generations and the more naive people, because those who are more internet-oriented, they also have... Uh, access to to better quality voices i think you're right, right but here's the thing when he realized because it's it's funny because he has some quality guests like joseph farrell peter lavanda yes absolutely catherine yep. fitz so he should know better mm-hmm. when he's able to find quality guests how does he square that with complete foolery that's well, kind of I think it's the numbers. You'll have to, you can ask him. Yeah, if I ever <laughs> um, get the chance, no problem. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, with any of these radio hosts that are doing shows all the time, they're always looking for guests. I don't know how much of that that factors in. In Jimmy's case, and I, I really want to be clear here because he is a friend of mine, and I, I don't just like him; I do respect him. But I've respected him enough for years and years to tell him when I disagreed with him, no. and you know, we were pretty upfront about that. And then he. I think he saw the light. I think it came. Okay. It, he definitely recognized that that he was being taken for a ride, and so I think he got very angry about it. He has only contempt nowadays to say, you know, on behalf of those types of people and claims. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, good if he learns something. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's easy for me to sit here and lash out because I'm in complete control of this show. I, I select who my guests are. Right. It's not the same when you work for a corporation. I realize that. No, I mean, in situations like that, people like Jimmy, they're thrown into the middle of a blizzard. It's really hard. I have a lot of sympathy for folks who've got to try to make a living yeah. in this crazy field of ours. So, uh, and really the key is, and I've had to do this, figure out a way to do it myself, is to to understand how to maintain as much control as possible over my professional life. Mm. And it's very difficult when you work for someone else. And fortunately, I don't work for anyone else. I only work for the members of my website, people who uh, who pay on a monthly basis to be part of that site. And I, I feel I work for the public. That's really what I feel. Yeah. So I don't work for a company in any way, and, and I never have. So it's been – it's allowed me to to have that level of independence as you have as mm. well. Yeah, and and it's interesting you mentioned that because last time we spoke, you were in the media business, but then you were doing radio. Right. So you did uh, do radio shows back then, but I don't know, did you do it from home or yes. from a studio? Oh, yes, always, okay. always from home. It is kind of like podcasting. <laughs> no, it is. It's, because um, now, as you mentioned, you've launched, uh, well, not just a website, you've launched also a YouTube channel. Yes. You, you're kind of going uh, down uh, Dr. Farrell's road here. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing he's done the same thing from day one he has his he web, has his own website yeah, yes and a, a channel yeah yeah so tell us a little about this transition oh yeah i'm trying to find first ways off of, yeah. are you still doing the radio i do uh yes so i have i still have the richard dolan show whereby i'll interview uh guests on a selective basis um i don't i don't really i'm not as active with that as i was a few years ago it's it's hard it's um, I don't think of myself first and foremost as a radio person. I think of myself first and foremost as a researcher of the UFO subject. So uh, the radio has been good be in order to get my messages out, and I, I will do that. And then I do uh, uh, every other week, more or less, I'll do a live stream show with my wife, Tracy. We call that Intelligent Disclosure. And I'll do occasional other um, recordings for YouTube or elsewhere, you know, from time to time. And then I actually do quite a lot of recordings solely for my website. So I do that. Mm. Yeah. So so if you if you become a member, you get stuff that you can't get in the public. That's correct. And, you know, look, the reason I do that, A, I, I want to have something for the members of my site. Yeah, of course. But I'll be perfectly honest with you, Al, the way that our society has gone in the last several years it's really it's difficult for me to want to step in publicly um all the time and to comment on the kinds of issues that i want to comment on it's just it's the hassle is not worth it mm. it's not frequently so and that's not simply with the ufo subject which in many ways is like a horrible cesspool of personalities. <laughs> but in general, like I don't simply research UFOs. I research geopolitics. Hmm. I've done a great deal of study on what are known as false flags and the color revolution regime change model of the United States. I've studied that in a, to great, great extent. So when we deal with the greater, the larger world of politics in general, our world has gone through a, um, a genuine cultural revolution. And 
I, I would lie if I said I wasn't nervous hmm. about the mob reaction to anything that I might say in particular that would offend this or that group. Mm. Because I know we, we've gotten to a point in our society where if you're a public persona, you've got to be very careful in a sense, like in a way that's never existed before. Mm. It's never it, five years ago. It wasn't like this, but it's like that now. And to say nothing of YouTube uh, demonetization or soft banning, soft censorship, which happens all the time to me. Yeah. <clears throat> No, no, or, not just you, or everything. Yeah, Look, everyone. I predicted this back in 15. I said to people, and it, I sounded like Arabia uh, conspiracy theorist right. then. I said, look, here's the plan. We've seen a, a trend now where mainstream media is tanking. People are just not watching it anymore. Average Fox, MSNBC, CNN, you are like 70, 80 years old. Right. Papers are closing down. Uh, there's no real journalists anymore. They can't afford it. Oh, yeah. Every- Those who are there have a huge pressure. So it's completely crisis in legacy media. Right. And then they look at Internet, who has exploded. And Internet was free for so long, right? And it was flourishing. And that's how free voices could come up. But by the way, kudos to you for being able to come after the censorship and still manage to have some kind of uh, growth. Thank you. That's very hard but it's because you had uh, already uh, an established legacy of your own. But here's the thing, I said and people can go back and check my my first shows, Uh the plan is because they've been holding back uh, advertisement money for so long because they didn't want, they were flooding TV and uh, newspaper and radio with advertised money, yeah. but nothing on the internet, even though that's where, where the people were. And the reason were very simple. Those who pay the advertisement, the multinational corporations, are the same who own the legacy media. Absolutely. So if they were starting to flush uh, ad money into... Uh, internet media, they will basically take money from their own and give to independent new voices, right? Yeah. So instead, they uh, concocted out this basic plan. Let's uh, look at what's going on online. Okay, YouTube is the biggest platform. Okay, let's take over YouTube. That's basically right. So they did via Google, Alphabet, yeah. Google, and then YouTube. Correct. And then, okay, we can't just shut down 90% of YouTube, right? Uh, we need the listeners. Yeah. So they started implementing the new regime in YouTube after they bought out the innovators, started implementing this slow process of starving, shadow banning, uh, exactly. censorship of ads, all that stuff. And you came after that started. And so now today, if you, let's say you put on a Richard Dolan uh, program on YouTube, if you let it go on autoplay and just have it on in the background, so it's new show, new show. Yes. Eventually it ends up with, for example, CNN, some kind of establishment channel. Uh, uh, That's uh. one of the algorithms. Yeah, I had, you know, are you aware of Cliff High? Yes, I know Cliff. Yeah, I've had him on uh, for a show just discussing these things called Secrets of the Digital World. So that's a plug for that show, people. So they, they feed the algorithm with a biased... It's not like addressing you specifically, Richard, or me. Right. It's just in general, they know who is owned by those who have the money, the establishment, and they rig everything so that, in fact, they go as far as unsubscribing people automatically uh, from independent media and then force subscribing them to mainstream media. So ah. you, uh, you should make your own, uh, from time to time, you should ask your subscribers to just double check that they are subscribed. You'd be amazed to see how many who just yeah. disappears. It's good policy. 
Well, we have seen this happening now. Uh, everything that you say is exactly true. The um, counterattack, you could say, by yeah. the established powers to uh, really wrest control of the web and of the internet away from ordinary people back toward legacy media. And they, they have done it. They've succeeded. Uh, really, the transition was, I think, the big switch was in 2016. That was the U.S. presidential year, the election year between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, and you could really see like that was the moment. And again, I, you know, in the U.S., probably anywhere, you've anytime you mention the name Donald Trump, you've got to be so careful because people truly lose their minds on both sides <laughs> on both sides on both sides of this um but i will have to say particularly those people who hate uh donald trump i yeah. it's very difficult to talk to them about this but what clearly was happening is that you had a non-establishment candidate and whether one believes his rhetoric or not is another thing but yeah. his rhetoric was was totally non-establishment non um, non-empire, it was anti-empire and it was anti-globalization. So that's that's designed to go against the incomplete U.S. establishment policy. Mm. So he, in, in other words, basically declared himself the enemy of that establishment and they went after him. Mm. It's it's really that simple. It's not anything more complicated than that. It's nothing to do with his racism or sexism or any of that at all. No, no, that's a symbol uh, case. Totally irrelevant. Mm. So what you saw though was this very, very coordinated attempt by Google, by Facebook, by the mainstream media as well to legislate uh, legislate against so-called hate speech or um, you know things like – or then also misinformation now they're going. So they're not even stopping with hate speech, which is a pernicious concept to begin with. There should be no such legislation ever against hate speech in any way. I think that's absolutely bogus. But now they're going even farther – and not only legislating against so-called hate speech, but now against misinformation. And so really you've seen that that Trump is really the excuse yeah. for that establishment to, to go down the road they've gone. And my goodness, they, they have so successfully taken control of the phrase fake news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's actually amazing. Like my friends on the left more than five, six years ago – would have had no problem criticizing CNN. Mm. None, none at all. Uh, everyone, everyone on the left and on the right understood that CNN was a propaganda machine. But suddenly with Trump's election, half of the United States, uh, Democrat, <laughs> Democrat voters now listen to CNN. And it's as if they learned nothing. Yeah, well, the segment of the left called liberals, not not the like, like the Bernie Sanders segment. They hate CNN. Right, right. But you're right. It's called. A, I, th I think they call it TDS, Trump Derangement Syndrome. That's that's exactly. Yeah. No, I've seen it. Yeah. My own mother has it. I I love my mother. <laughs> and and I can understand why the powers that be cracks down. Yeah. But right. why would ordinary citizens? support this anti-free speech wave that is strangling the entire internet now. Well, That's we, because we've, we've raised an entire new generation of human beings. So we don't have the same society that we had. Uh, I, I was a kid in the 1970s. I mean, that, that society is so dead and gone. Yeah. It's never coming back. So we've got a, now a world in which young people are raised on Alexa and Google Echo. And even the older generation... 
in the U.S. in particular, you could really see an entire generation of young people being raised to be the most brittle human beings ever. And I don't say this disparagingly. I've got two young adult kids. They're in their 20s now. They've turned out well. I'm, I'm proud of them. But I see a lot of that generation is very, very psychologically brittle. Um, you know, the result of um, what, what they call uh, bubble wrapping their kids, not allowing <laughs> kids to have any risk, not allowing kids to go out and really do things and, and to become strong, independent uh, adults. They really lost that opportunity. I think you could argue in the U.S., I don't know how it is in Norway, but there are probably a lot of 10-year-old kids today who have probably not had more than 10 hours of unsupervised time to play with other kids without adults around. Like there's really not a, a genuine level of independence accorded to young people anymore. And as a result, they don't have it. As a result, they've been bred to be dependent yeah. on a system and and not to know how to resolve conflicts so that when something happens that that goes against their their interests or wishes like they they break down so they're not they're not strong psychologically and again this is not to condemn them it's not their fault but it's happened and so i think that's part of it so you've got a whole new generation of people who really don't believe in necessarily in the value of free speech and freedom of discourse and what they don't understand is that it's only through freedom of speech by allowing people who disagree with you to express their opinions that you have actually have a chance as a society because if you don't allow people who disagree with you to speak the only way conflicts become resolved then is through violence mm. if it's not through words it's going to be through deeds and you don't want that we want to work things out through argument through through speech which is not always fun it's not always pleasant but it's the most it's the best we've got yeah. And we've now moved into a society where increasingly um, you see there's this really awful, awful moralistic tone, this sanctimonious moralistic tone that has um, come to dominate our uh, war the world's political discourse. And it's the worst thing. It's absolutely the worst thing. So when yeah. you when you see things in black and white moralistic terms, that's the quickest way you can demonize your opponent. Mm. Because if you see if, – if it's a world of good people versus bad people all the time, then you inevitably will see yourself as one of the good people and you'll see those others that disagree with you as bad people who then can be deplatformed or worse. And that is where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were cheering on, uh, uh, you know, first they came for Alex Jones. Everybody can agree that Alex Jones is like a cartoon over the top figure, right? Well, I'm so- going gonna, gonna to stop you there and I'm actually going to defend this man. And it's really an unpopular thing to do, but I don't care. I listened to Alex Jones for many years and I, I could recognize when he was over the top. Mm. I didn't care. I don't listen to people because I agree with them 100% of the time. To me, that's ridiculous. If I were to do that, I'd just you know, live in my own little echo chamber. So the only way that I learn is by listening to people that offer interesting ideas to me mm. that I'm able, because I'm an adult who has a rational mind, I'm able to decide what I think. And in the case of someone like Alex Jones, I'm going to give this man some serious credit. He was the one who broke into the Bohemian Grove meeting mm. almost 20, whatever, 20 years ago. He did that. Hmm. He was one of the first people to look at 9-11 critically as an inside job. And he did a lot of other things that we are very convenient to forget. Yeah. So he was always positioned on the outside. 
of the established media, and he was necessary. All right. So what ended up happening is that, yes, obviously, he said he always would say things that I would just roll my eyes and think, oh, here we go. <laughs> but so what? Hmm. Like, we're not in a world where we want the people we listen to, to to just parrot our own preconceived ideas about what we think the world should be. We need to be challenged, and he's one of those people. And to deplatform him because of yeah. alleged misinformation or hate speech or some such nonsense was a really pernicious step that was taken. And that only, you know, that was the first. That wasn't the last. They got David Icke a few months ago. Yeah, that, that's why I said first they came for Alex Jones, and people were sharing it on. Right. And, and and now they have to swallow that chair because now they're uh, doing the same left and right. The thing is, you're so right that back in the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s, uh, as nauseating as the 80s were, even then the, it was more common with critical thinking among ordinary people. Yes. So you're right in that they are nowadays much more uh, vulnerable to this black and white and, and safe space and all that. But I, I want to take issue also with what you said mm -hmm. uh, and, and defend the millennials a little. I'm Generation X. Okay. I feel uh, my generation is split between two different kinds of insanities because everything you said about the millennials is correct. But you also have... Uh, the fact that they've grown up with the internet, unlike uh, us others, have also made them uh, more equipped to be able to find critical. They're much better than the older generations to find critical information. They're also much better to see through bullshit. Mm. And the biggest uh, crowd supporting establishment is the goddamn boomers. <laughs> they are, are, are those... So, so they are just as much a part of this problem, of this equation, as the new people. Right. So you have the worst on both sides <laughs> of these generations. The millennials, I think, are an in-between generation, actually. They're, you know, there are people a lot younger than the millennials. And, um, yeah, I maybe think, that's the one I was, uh, you, you were talking about, we were talking right, about. Right. So, yeah. and again, I say this without, I have no bad feelings toward anyone of any generation, uh, whether they're boomers which technically I'm one of the last of the boomers. I was born in 1962. They call me a late boomer. Yeah. Um, technically, I'm in that club. You're at the cusp of Generation X. I, I am indeed, yes. Mm. But, um, you know, millennials or the, the Gen Z, um, I mean, there are great, smart people in all of them. But in terms of trends, you're asking why I think, anyway, we've we've gotten to this point where people are willing to shut down uh, speech they don't like, and I think it's actually, at least in part, we're we're moving to a new form of society, a new form of, of human society. I'm, I, let's call it transhumanist society. I've been talking yeah. about this, and one of the things about that I I believe is is that they are creating a cultural transformation globally, and I I believe that this is part of it. I think this is a a long uh, transformation. Yeah, it's very easy. Alex Jones is a good example because uh, it's not just that they deplatformed him, but it was coordinated. It was coordinated by different companies who shouldn't. You know, are they talking together? It's like yeah. it's like the worst uh, nightmare movie, right? And you saw this once before, very early on, and that was a very bad warning signal but people didn't heed it you saw the exact same thing happen with 
Julian Assange. That's right. Because if you think back, what they did, and I was shocked, what they did was that they coordinated an attack on WikiLeaks. This was before it should even be possible. It was before they taken over internet. You saw all the big banks, PayPal, everyone tried to crush WikiLeaks economically yeah. at the same time as they took him down. And the newspapers were, were doing the same towards him as they did. Absolutely. To. So th- this indicates that, and, and it's not, it's not rocket science because we know how the world is structured, right? It's, it's multinational. It's like Bormann's cartels. Yes. So all you need is just very powerful uh, owners at the top who just sends down the command of how it's going to be. Right. And that's what we're trapped in right now. Absolutely. By the way, you mentioned false flags. Uh, you said last time I had you on that you were working on a book about that. Just to clear that up, that book isn't out yet, is it? Uh, yeah, I don't. Well, what I ended up doing is I created a multi-part series for Gaia TV on false flags. So um, that's an 11 episode series on the history of false flags. Uh, It's not comprehensive, but it does cover a lot of historical false flags. So I did that and I, I've got my false flag book project. It's still in the queue. I don't know at this point when I'm going to actually write or publish that. I want to complete my uh, UFO related research first. I, had to really come to grips. Um, you, you're still working on on uh, volume three of uh, the history. That's right. That's <laughs> the, <laughs> that's, that's my story that I'm telling the world, and I I think it's still true. Well, it's excellent books, so so it it really deserves it. But um, yeah, you take your time. You're you're kind of the opposite of Pharrell here, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I I hope to be alive before it's all completed. Right. <laughs> And I do understand why you would make the false flag uh, uh, series onto TV because these days it's impossible to survive by books and <laughs> probably also a reason that you it's very hard yeah. you're online right so yeah okay Richard I, I think we should switch over to the topic at hand good. Happy to. Well, a friend of mine had you on not long ago, Alex Sakiris of Skeptico. Yes. Really enjoyed uh, that discussion. I guess it's fresh when uh, people are actually, uh, you know, engaged in the debate and asking critical questions. Yeah, we had a very, very uh, good conversation. I think we both enjoyed it quite a lot. Indeed, I recommend everybody to go check it out. I just did a show with him two days ago. He says hello, by the way. I Great. told him I'm going to have you on. Yeah. Wonderful. Now, me and Alex are, uh, are coming at this from kind of, we agree about a lot of stuff, but when it comes to this subject, we kind of at each side of the equation, but we have very good, right. intelligent, cordial, uh, discussions and we have no problem with disagreeing. So, Fabulous. for me, I- I'm going to attack this probably from the opposite side of where he attacked it. <laughs> Great. And since it's so long you've been on, I'll just remind you my uh, approach to this is kind of more like the secret space program. I mean, the original concept of the secret space program. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's no uh, aliens. I'm just saying there's also humans and we have to give that. So, I'm kind of there, whereas right. Alex is more on the opposite side. So we're gonna we're gonna go walk around those topics, but I want to start with uh, plugging your book, is, which is the basis for this show today, and that's 
Well, it has two titles, or uh, I see, depending on if it's the hardcover or the softcover. But at least the main title mm. is AD after disclosure, and then it has two different yes. subtitles. And you've written this with a chap called Bryce Bryce Sable, and I want to yes. just start mm-hmm. giving him a little kudos uh, too. Uh, I want to ask you who who is this dude, and uh, what was yeah. his contribution in this project? Yeah, Bryce Sable um, is a wonderful man. He lives in uh, LA slash Hollywood area. He's a film uh, TV producer. And he's probably most remembered for being the creator of the TV show Dark Skies back in the late 1990s, Mm. which was a very fine show. It ran for a full season on uh, NBC. Uh, I thought it was one of the best uh, fictional dramatic portrayals of the real inside UFO cover-up. So Bryce has always been interested in the UFO subject, and he's got the skill of being a really good scriptwriter. And we started a conversation back in 2009, discovered that we liked each other. Uh, our conversations morphed into a discussion about disclosure. It actually, the whole concept of the of the book occurred organically through a series of phone conversations that Bryce and I had at that time. And we thought, you know what, we actually... We can do this book if we really organize our efforts well and, and we can we can make it happen. So uh, I would say we, we did that book 50-50 uh, with me as the project manager. So by that, I simply mean I organized all of our files on a Google Docs. We <laughs> I had a division of labor. I remember putting this together. I, we created our table of contents and then divided the labor amongst uh, how we decided to do it and then edited each other's work over and over and over again until we were done with it. And then we wrote it throughout the course of uh, 2010 and we had it out in uh, our self-published version back, uh, I think, in the fall of 2010. Yeah. So that was that's how it happened. He was a great guy to work with. We had a very good uh, – we talked on the phone probably every day or just about and had our kind of – assignments that we had given each other and then uh worked he, he cracked the whip a lot and i think if it were not for him i don't think it would have gotten as, done as quickly as it did so <laughs> all in all it was a really good partnership i i'm very happy so, so he had your wife's role in that project he yes he did <laughs> he was prodding. I, and by that i just mean uh, helping you facilitate being productive no it's true <laughs> i'll often work a lot better like i'm i'm really an independent writer but i won't lie if i've got someone with their boot on my backside pushing me forward (laughs) uh, sometimes that's what i need and bryce did that for me for sure Mm. and uh, the result was a really good and the to to date the only book that really tried to understand two questions the first which which was how might ufo secrecy really end and particularly in in 2010 this was a really tough question to envision and we we try to sit down and ask ourselves what might be the process by which it happened and then the second question that we tried we spent most of the book really dealing with is if ufo secrecy were to end how would that affect our society what what would happen what would it be like Hmm. so that was that was what we set out to try to do and we took the job as if we were some kind of think tank i think and um asking you know, the most logical types of questions that we could ask and, and really 
trying to piece this together. And at the end of that book, we both concluded that the reason that we both felt that UFO secrecy hadn't ended is because it was far too radical a proposition. It would transform so much in this world that there's very little upside from the point of view of those people who maintain this secret. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny because, yeah, think tank, that's exactly, I want to give you a chance to kind of do this process over again uh, today because uh, two things. One, uh, culture has changed so much and we're going to touch that uh, more uh, at the second part of the show. And two, and, and by the way, with that, I mean uh, many of the premises that weren't there uh, are here. Uh, there's different premises now that would probably change the book too. Yes. And two, it's it's so wonderful because it's true what you say. Uh, the book is very unique in that respect that it, you know, scenario thinking. People love speculation. When when experts, academic experts are on, who are, you know, researching interesting stuff, yeah. like you, like Pharrell, like Lavender, when they start speculating, excuse my French people, that's when the audience, they get a hard on. And the, <laughs> the great thing here is that you done this because you, as an academic, you can't really speculate too much. Right. But you have the perfect alibi with this book because the whole exercise is a, is a, is a expert guess speculation. And that's a uh, wonderful. I, like, I do like to speculate, but it is true. <laughs> I feel that when I speculate, A, I want to make it clear that people know I'm speculating, so mm-hmm. I don't ever want to misrepresent that as something more uh, solid than it is. But B, I, th- I just think it's important to speculate, actually, based on the the factual information that's available. Yeah. I think speculation's fair, but again, we want to be clear about when we're doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, first rule in the book. I, I should also add that uh, forward by Jim Mars. May he rest in peace. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And preface by Stephen Bassett. Yes. Not bad. Now, um, uh, so let's start with, uh, there's two premises here. Uh, let's, let's start with uh, how stuff would be disclosed. Well, in our, in our book, we really try to ask ourselves, so back in, 2010 we were asking this to 10 years ago and i would say that for both of us the number one guess would be like an amazing sighting Mm. and that's turned out not to be the case obviously but for the way we were thinking about it 10 years ago is there's no motivation for anyone to give this secret up how might it happen well something that happens that's beyond their control and that could be a sighting now that we're in the age of ubiquitous cell phones with good decent cameras right and video capability someone very likely might capture something and and put it out on youtube right Mm. that is too compelling too um you know too difficult to deny and so that would cause a snowball effect so that was one possibility now, even then, we were both thinking, well, there's actually a lot of data that's out there already that – and it, it isn't necessarily the case that any of this is is breaking through. But we still thought it's entirely possible that with new and better uh, equipment by ordinary people that something could slip through the cracks and break through the uh, the establishment censorship. So that was one. The other uh, possibility we really considered was a leak through something like WikiLeaks. 
which, you know, back in 2010, WikiLeaks was still a fairly new organization. I think it started around 2005, 2006, if I'm not mistaken. So it was fairly new. And back then, uh, in 2010, people forget this, but WikiLeaks was the darling of of the left, mm. actually. <laughs> they, they then became hated by the left uh, with the 2016 election. But back in 2010, a lot of people on the left and on the right thought WikiLeaks was a really valuable organization and that it's entirely possible that they would um, – or some organization like that would get some kind of classified information and put it out there. So those are the two big ones. And then, you know, we thought, well, maybe some insider would go public, um, but they'd have to be really brave. And we didn't really put a lot of stock in that. So those were, and then, but in general, I would say that the thing that I have always held fast to is that, it's a general idea that we're in a very fast-moving society now. Mm. Our civilization is is moving faster than it has ever moved ever in human history. That is by the rate of change that we're experiencing technologically, socially, um, politically. It's all happening. And so my general reasoning was always in such a situation where there's so much that's um, – jumbled and and moving so many moving parts that it's more likely than not that something can happen that will jar open the secrecy that it would be foolish to expect that ufo secrecy would would not be affected by the transformation of our society so i i would often just say there could be things that i can't predict over the next decade or two that could enter the mix that i can't really see but i think this is the general trend we're looking at so those were the, the basic things that we were saying 10 years ago as far as how UFO secrecy might end. One thing we didn't predict would be the formation of an organization like To The Stars Academy, TTSA. Headed by yeah, we'll get to them later, yeah. Yeah, we will. Mm. But I think like that model, so a model mm. of ex-insiders or ex-slash-current insiders acting in a quasi-private, quasi-public way – that you know it's not like we didn't consider it but i don't i don't think that we thought that would be the the top candidate no you you were as surprised as anyone else when it came but it's interesting these three things you say yes i'm i'm thinking now when i hear you say it that there's been a development just these 10 years. It's as if, you know, if you want to be very conspiratorial, it's as if they read your book and say, oh my God, this man is right. Let's tank all three options. Because if you think about it, sightings, yes, 10 years ago, such a thing could have. But nowadays, if you, if you take a, a good sighting and put it out on YouTube, nobody will believe it. Right. We're so cynical and we can't even tell the difference if it's fake or not. So that won't have that effect anymore as it would have had back when you thought about it. Second, That's right. WikiLeaks. Well, we now see that you know, you, you, I guess you were a little innocent to how controlled, and maybe it wasn't that controlled then, but the main, mainstream media we know now is super controlled. So it, it wouldn't happen. I mean, just look at how they 
treat Julian Assange. So even if uh, the, the something genuine, someone would leak something, uh, first off, there would be almost nobody to print it. Second of all, it would end up in obscure dark corners of the internet. It wouldn't have the mainstream impact. Right. And th- the third interesting development that wasn't an insider, well, like we just discussed, uh, after, and I'll, I'll name someone, and he's not the only one, but let's say Corey Good. Yeah. After someone like him, that card can't be played either anymore. So all three options are now tanked as far as I see it. Um, I don't think that they're tanked. I think, um, let me just say one thing relating to um, control of the media. I, I think it's fair to say that I back even in 2010, had little to no illusions over how the media was controlled. Mm. But I did underestimate the ability of the establishment to destroy WikiLeaks so quickly mm. and to discredit WikiLeaks as quickly as they've, they did. Um, I would say that. I, that caught me off guard. I, I had envisioned uh, WikiLeaks having a greater ability to act against the interests of that corporate establishment media. So that was one thing I, I will definitely admit I was surprised by. Mm. Uh, in terms of inside individuals, leakers, whistleblowers, and so on, yeah, that the whole uh, phenomenon of people like Corey Good definitely made the, um, you know, would make it more difficult, maybe on the face of it, to accept testimony. But the thing is, look, it always comes down to, are you able to prove who you are? My feeling is whistleblowers remain valuable if you can, but the first step of being a whistleblower is being able to prove who you are. And of course, that was never the case with with, um, a lot of those whistleblowers, including Corey Good. He can never prove that he had any of the credentials he claimed to have. But if you're a whistleblower who has credentials and you're able to demonstrate it, I think you could still be quite valuable. Yeah, but look at, do you know who Bill Binney is? Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so a guy like him, uh, Snowden didn't reveal anything he hadn't revealed. The only thing Snowden did was that he gave the hard proof of what he revealed. That's right. And under Obama, there has never been more uh, whistleblowers uh, you know, cracked down on us under Obama. He removed the last uh, line of protection and Unfortunately, Trump has continued uh, that yep. trend. So Trump. who would be so crazy today as being a genuine whistleblower? I mean, we have a lot of fake whistleblowers. For example, in the in the bullshit case against Trump, uh, these uh, FBI, CIA, whatever they are, uh, right. right? But yeah. real whistleblowers, you'd be crushed. Yeah, yes, exactly. No, I think you've got a really good point there. I, I agree with you. It's really, it's very hard to be a whistleblower. I guess in theory, I would still hold out that it would be possible to be a whistleblower if you are able to demonstrate who you are. But you make a good point. Like it's it's harder and harder legally, certainly in the US and I'm sure elsewhere to be able to do that. So the deck, the deck is really stacked against um, UFO secrecy. And um how how it could end, I mean, here we are now in 2020, it's been 10 years after I wrote that book, how it could end is still not 100% clear to me after all this time. Well, I, I think I know how it will end, and I'll, I'll tell you that later, and I want your take on it. 
Sure. But um, apart from these three scenarios, are there other scenarios mentioned either in the book or that you are entertaining now that could do it? Hmm. Well, I'll just say on a general level that I have seen in the last generation a definite cultural change in how this subject in general ufos is being taken and it's there's a much much greater openness i'm not saying it's completely free and easy and that we can just talk about it publicly without a problem but mm. it's much more it's much easier to talk about publicly now than it was 20 years ago or 30 years yeah ago. the overtone window has shifted for sure right so so we've definitely seen a cultural shift and a change in culture might just be the first necessary uh, transition for having a political change. So when more and more people are willing to accept this as a given truth that there are genuine UFOs, uh, we we actually might be able to find a political opening. Like, for example, uh, since the, the efforts – I know we're going to talk about TTSA later, but mm. – Due to the efforts of TTSA, the United States Navy has actually, and the U.S. Pentagon in general, has made a formal acknowledgement that they encounter these objects, or they, they call them UAP, but it's the same thing. Mm. These unknown objects that can outperform their own aircraft, they don't know who they belong to. They're not saying they think it's alien, but they are obviously leaving open all possibilities. So – the official establishment has opened the door to more of a conversation on this subject than we've ever been able to have. And as one high-level insider connected with all this told me, he said, well, it's just more toothpaste out of the tube. <laughs> so that when when you, it comes out, it, it's not going back in. So now that the U.S. Navy has actually openly admitted that they have encounters with objects that don't do not look normal do not behave normally and have performance capabilities that are so vastly beyond anything that we understand it makes it easier for us to have a, a genuine conversation about this and so now where that will lead is a tough question to answer but i i don't think we're moving backwards at this point so we're we're lurching forward bit by bit, it seems to me. Didn't you mention a scenario where, in fact, let me launch my, my suggestion and I want your take on it, okay? Yes, sir. It's but bear with me here. So, sure. first off, you know the concept of chemtrails. Yes, of course. It doesn't matter what we think about it. I'm going, just going to use it as an example now. Let's say that they are spraying uh, deliberately and uh, polluting for whatever reason yeah. you know it doesn't matter right now it's just an example and and this is done obviously without oversight and undercover etc now then we have the weird phenomenon that they are suddenly after having ridiculed it and, and dismissed it for all these years now the scientific community who are dealing with those aspects are actually seriously discussing in open conferences, what we would call chemtrace, aerosol, yes. weather manipulation, as if yes, as if this was 30 years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I do. I and, do. I and do. that's what I call the whitewashing. I could give you other example, but this is one example. So 
Let's say they then they start actually doing it. In this scenario, they have been doing it. And so that will conflate with what they have been doing. And if there's any drawback to it, oh, look, we, we thought, look, it is all in the open. We did some mistakes or oh, whatever. Right. Uh, so it just becomes a default reality and nobody's any wiser and nobody's looking twice. Now, right. launch Space Force. Yes, exactly. In this scenario, I'm suggesting, here's how at least partly the disclosure could happen. And that's that for whatever reason, maybe Trump is clued in, maybe uh, his uh, regime just knows enough to try to hijack this and force it. Maybe he's just doing their bidding. But for whatever reason, they seed this idea of, oh, we're going to Mars, we're going to the moon. And then they start actually building Oh, look, we have a breakthrough. Richard Hoagland just uh, mentioned how NASA now actually do use uh, anti-gravity uh, concept. I forgot what it's called, but it's in the mainstream. Uh-huh. So gradually, uh, you, you certainly have this phenomenon where we are going to Mars and the moon. And if they have been playing around with a classified space program, hitherto, then voila, nobody's any wiser and they can't be, uh, t- no, 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 look, this is what w- we openly admit we're doing, right? right? And and nobody will go into the past, especially because paper trail is like uh, old uh, concept going out on date. Yes, I see. So this digital day and age. So unfortunately, it's very hard to, you know, find out what really has happened up to a point. So I suggest that's a way they can whitewash it, not necessarily with aliens, but with the concept itself. The only way aliens would fit into this, if they seriously want to uh, accelerate, not just for mining stuff out there, which I'm sure they're doing, but also for the war aspect, then they would accept either fake or real, some kind of, right. oh, look, folks, now we've been doing this for 10, 20 years, but look, there's other people there and they are hostile. Uh, th- these are the aliens, let's take them. And we said this back in the T- TSA day. Remember, we had these weird things, we didn't know what this, look, it's this. That's a way it could happen. And of course, this way, it would be completely controlled by the powers that be. Yeah, this I agree with what you're saying. And this is actually something I've been talking about for a long, long time in uh, a lot of lectures that I've given. And uh, oh, wow. at least as early as 2010 or even sooner, earlier than that. In, in other words, that um, disclosure would be something where those people who've got this secret – they, they know that the secret can't truly last forever. It has a shelf life. It's got to, it's got to end at some point. So the question then is how, how do they end it? And if they're able to stretch it out for as long as they can while developing radical technologies, radical UFO based technologies, and then slowly introducing them. That it's, it, it is possible that they can do, just as you were suggesting, and, and that is essentially whitewash the subject. But the thing that they would have to do, um, and this is something I theorized a long time ago, would be it would be necessary to control public discourse almost completely. So they'd have Which to, they do today. Absolutely. So, but back in 2008, 2009, when I was thinking about this, it, it wasn't no. possible to control the internet. Like the internet was still wide open back in those days. So I really thought if there's going to be a disclosure, 
It's going to have to be when the powers that be are confident that they can truly control all major elements of the narrative. So they have they've got to be able to control that and to marginalize dissenting opinions. Hmm. Maybe not even eliminate them, but at least marginalize them so that people aren't listening to them. And I think that is what we have seen. We've seen a dramatic uh, move in the last five plus years by, let's say, the power elite to control all aspects of the internet. So that um, I think that is a danger, and uh, it's a danger to to the cause of truth. That what we may see is a very slow rollout of um, new technologies that allow us to basically become a space-faring civilization and without any kind of recognition that the, there was ever a genuine UFO phenomenon. Hmm. Like it's entirely possible. They can say, well, we make them now. We make our own flying saucers. That's what you're saying. And then people like me will say, well, what about the 1950s? Were you making them back then? But no one's going to care. Hmm. No one will. No one will be. In, in fact, uh, fifty years from now, they could afford admitting, "Yeah, we had some prototypes. We were experimenting a little that led yes, to this, something like that." Right. The truth will be. Um, truth comes out when it's no longer relevant. That's yeah. when the truth comes out, and no cost when it no longer matters. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you forget the war aspect. If they want to boost that, then they need aliens. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, a lot of people will say this. Stephen Greer says this. Uh, he's not the only one. A lot of folks will say – in fact, they say that this is what TTSA's role is, which is to scare the public uh, from evil aliens to boost military spending. Um, I don't believe that. I think that's actually a really not well-thought-out argument. But if you're going to – I mean, <laughs> first of all, they don't need aliens – to find a way to boost military spending, not in the U.S. <laughs> like that's never – the U.S. is spending about a, almost a trillion U.S. dollars a year on military budget now. Mm. It's, I mean it's unbelievable. And they have not yet once brought out the need to defend against aliens. So it hasn't happened. And I don't, I don't think that's necessary at all. Um, and there's a big price to pay by bringing up the whole alien thing. I mean, that to end the UFO cover-up simply so that you could spend a few extra dollars in the military, I don't really think it's worth it for them. I don't see that as a real benefit. Yeah, but why, why aren't they pitching the Space Force as a mining um, intention? Why do they emphasize the war aspect? Uh, they could easily do this just by commercial. Oh, that's, that's easy. I can answer that. Okay. Uh, space is... Uh, the necessary theater of operations that one must defend if you're going to be a, a global superpower. Like you must dominate space. There's no, this is not uh, debatable. So the United States is having a major rivalry with China. This is the new Cold War. Forget Russia. It's really China. China's military spending is now becoming quite substantial and significant. And China has also developed a very along with Russia, along with the United States, a very significant ability to weaponize space. Mm. Uh, their technology is very high level. And you're not going to be able to control the land or sea unless you control space. Mm. It's just not possible. You know, when the United States dominated 
Iraq way, way back 30 years ago in the Persian Gulf War and all of those smart bombs that they supposedly were using and all of that, none of that would have been effective without domination of space as a theater of operations because space gave you the satellites to track the enemy territory. It gave you the ability for your smart bombs to communicate with headquarters so that they could hit their target. You must dominate space. So it is absolutely essential from a geopolitical point of view. So you don't need the excuse of aliens to uh, justify a space force based on military need. Absolutely not. Mm. So the U.S. military has understood for many decades that they must dominate space. They must not allow competition on a military basis in space, at least to the best of their ability. That's what they're all about. It's about control. It's about hegemony over the world. So other nations realize this. China realizes this. Russia definitely realizes this. Russia's got Putin. He's probably the single smartest world leader. Mm. They, they all understand. And so they all realize that between artificial intelligence and space-based weaponry, like that's, that's what they have to move toward. They've got to be global leaders in, in those technologies. And so from, for Trump's statement that the United States is now having a unified space force, which, by the way, almost happened under Obama, um, from what I understand. It just didn't. I don't know why, but they certainly were considering it under Obama. Um, this is a long time coming. And the idea is really not difficult to understand. You, uh, I mean, the Air Force and U.S. Navy already had a significant presence in space. Um, possibly the Army. I, I'm not as familiar. But the, the Navy and the Air Force absolutely did. And they were both of those services were not happy about the creation of a unified space force because that meant they would lose control uh, to a large extent over it. But from a strategic point of view, it makes perfect sense to have a unified space force, just like it makes sense to have a unified Navy and a unified Army. So, you know, they're, you want something to control that whole theater of operations in a systematic, comprehensive way. That's what that's what no, it's all no, about. You're right. But uh, it's interesting to observe that Clinton, Hillary Clinton, uh, talked about UAP uh, probably, yeah. uh, yes, as a way to uh, get votes due to her involvement with uh, her campaign leader. What's his name again? Um, John Podesta. Yeah. But yes, I agree with this. This is in my opinion. But well. hang on. It could, yeah, but it could be also a way to try to warm people up to. Uh, this project that they're going to launch, which ended up through the Trump regime as the Space Force, if you see what I mean. No, uh, right. I, I, it's wild speculation, obviously. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I'm, look, we've got behind the scenes machinations going on all the time with this sort of thing. Yeah. And we all know our political representatives are essentially window dressing. Hillary Clinton... Um, as almost to the same extent as, well, exactly to the same extent as any other major politician, they all know who they have to work for. They work for the the actual owners of this of this world. That is the bankers and the people who control them. Uh, with Trump, whatever Trump's actual policies are, which some of them do seem to be directly opposed to um, the globalist agenda let's just say mm. but even and trump he can't control his administration in fact he's done a really 
poor job in many ways of controlling his bureaucracy. Mm. And he talked about draining the swamp. It's probably the single thing that he's failed most oh, at. Oh, it's so swampy. It's so yeah, swampy. He, he's not really been – and he didn't I, – I think it's fair to say he didn't expect to win – and so he came into the White House in 2017, I, I think, woefully unprepared yeah. um, and, and incapable, really, of defending his own people and starting with Michael Flynn mm. and, um, and everyone else after that. So, Yeah, the best people were, yeah. were teared out of that administration. And, and who replaced them? Neocons. Yeah, yeah. So he – I mean, Trump, Trump has certain instincts uh, in terms of global politics – but whatever the instincts are, I think he really allowed himself to be surrounded by mm. the very same neocons that Hillary Clinton would have been surrounded by if she were president. But here's another, actually, a, a fourth, no, fifth way this could happen. And you kind of mentioned it. Well, you didn't mention it, but but um, it's implied from what you said, because yeah. Russia and China, yes, they are aware of what's going on. And right. like India and Brazil and Europe and some other players, they have the ability to even go to the moon, uh, but let alone the war aspect. But what if, and I could ask you in this way, why aren't Putin or, or China just disclosing, look, look what USA is up to. Look. Right. I asked myself that. You can't trust them. That could be a way, couldn't it? Yes, absolutely. I Four years ago, I think, uh, yeah, before the Trump-Hillary election, I was asked that very question. And I said, well, I would love to see Putin do it ahead of the U.S. The, the U.S. has lied more than any other nation on this matter. Maybe they don't deserve to disclose. Let, let the Russians mm. do it. Mm. I thought that would actually be. And I, I speculated. I mean, the U.S. has been not so secretly at war with Russia for quite some time now. And you could see it as a as a power play or as a, as a maneuver in the chess game exactly. against the U.S., right? But the thing is, I... When you look at Putin and you look at Xi Jinping of China, you've got two very, very fundamentally conservative leaders of each of those countries. Uh, in the case of Xi in China, I mean, it's absolute totalitarian control over the society. In the case of Putin, you just have a very, very conservative guidance of national policy. Uh, so it would backfire as bad as, on them as it would for the American regime. I, I'm sorry, repeat that. I didn't hear what you just said. So it would backfire. If they did something like that, uh, it would backfire on them, their own regimes as bad. Well, I think so. I think that yeah. there's a, a real... Uh, because it's something that's so big yeah. uh, that the the implications of change would... It would be very hard to predict where they would come out of it. So one one of the things that we wrote about in After Disclosure 10 years ago that I, I think is still spot on is how disclosure would completely threaten to upset the entire energy paradigm of world civilization, which, you know, 10 years ago and today is, is still fundamentally based on petroleum and other fossil fuels like natural gas. Uh, and the reason I think it would upset that disclosure would upset that is that it wouldn't take long following a disclosure for the question to arrive, arise, what do these objects use to go from point A to point B? And even if we don't have the exact answer uh, right now, we would know that such an answer is possible because it's done. And that's actually probably the biggest hurdle toward uh, a, getting a solution is just knowing that there is one. 
so I think that it wouldn't be very long indeed before we move from a petroleum-based to a post-petroleum society. Now, that would actually be good news for most people in the world, maybe. Petroleum's the, the thing that, that makes our world go, but it's also the thing that we're kind of chained to. We're enslaved to it. So a post-petroleum world could be good, but it could also be very, very disruptive. Very disruptive, I have no doubt. And you think of all of the implications that would happen if, let's just say, it were to come out that these objects move on the basis of what we might call some kind of free energy. Mm. What would the world be like if if we actually had access, if you and me and all of our neighbors and all, everyone in the world had access to genuinely free or nearly free energy? We might think, wow, that's great. That's wonderful. We could heat our home for free for the for all time. And maybe that's true, but you might also be able to do a lot of other things that would make this world very disruptive from the point of view, particularly of those people who are managing this world. Economically, yes. Because that's a lot of freedom, a lot of power to give ordinary people. Yeah, and the last time you were on, you also yeah. we, we also discussed that uh, free energy devices may be able to be used very destructively. We don't know, right? People know this argument. It's entirely possible. Yes, and that would be a, a military threat to them that they wouldn't benefit from, especially not the totalitarian regime. Right, right. So the thing is that, I mean, we actually, you know, we humans had free energy. We forget. It was. It's called oil. <laughs> I mean, um, from the middle of the 19th century or just about onward, we've had access to petroleum, which was way cheaper, way more powerful than any other form of energy we ever had. And it allowed us to do all kinds of amazing things in this world, but it also increased our ability to wage war. And it also Pollution. sort of upped the ante, up the stakes, as it were, of, of our presence here on planet Earth. Hmm. And, and another form, a better form of energy might might do that even more like mm. we we like to think that oh yeah we're we're a gentle peaceful species that if you just give us enough energy for everyone to be fed and that we won't have reason to fight each other and i i wouldn't believe that for an instant i i, I would never believe that i think that we're a, a, we are kind of a psychopathic species actually i think there's actually something fundamentally screwed up about humanity I mean, we're wonderful, we're, we're geniuses, we're beautiful, but there's this streak of insanity that actually gets run through us. Co I call it cognitive dissonance, that's what it is. I'm sorry, what? Cognitive dissonance is the word you're looking for. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, we, our culture today. But China is in the vanguard of alternative energy. So if they, uh, I mean, they, yes, they are still dependent on old uh, stuff too, even coal. But they are really doing an effort. Could be something um, even deeper aspect to that. If they free themselves from oil and coal and all that stuff, right. then uh, they would have a huge advantage when it comes to future technology and even maybe doing something to upset the old order. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's possible. Like, as long as they're able to control that energy. China is different from the rest of the world. They are a totalitarian society in which everyone in that country is totally controlled by the government, mm. like under complete control. So there is zero freedom there. And it's actually getting worse because they've now they've, – they've successfully rolled out a social credit system. They've got a complete mass surveillance society yeah, yeah. that is uh, – they've basically buttoned it all down. 
And our leaders are jealous when they watch that. That's that's right. So in China's case, what you say is true. They they can conceivably roll out some kind of free energy um, when everyone in the society is completely surveilled and com- under total control of the government. You can potentially roll out uh, a new energy solution because you know what every single person in the society is doing and they they would not be obviously they wouldn't be allowed to use that energy except under t- complete control of the government so in the west we don't yet have that level of formal control over people um so maybe that's actually the answer right there it's you know wait for the world to go to complete 24/7 totalitarian control over all of the population and we very you know until we become one big anthill essentially is what we're looking at mm-hmm. one big bee colony and then we might be able to see some of these changes roll out and in fact i if you want to get into the ufo scenario what a lot of people who i mean we haven't really talked about this but people who claim that they've had contact experiences with other intelligences mm. well one of the things that they say like if you if one chooses to believe the messages that are coming from these other beings one of the messages is well your species is hopelessly engaged in primitive warfare and there's really nothing that we can do for you until you go through a transformation mm. and what if <laughs> what if that transformation is uh, that we have to become one big ant colony Jeez. Like the Borg in the yeah. old Star Trek hive show, you know, mind. we're of yeah. a hive mind. Mm. What if that's it? Jeez. Maybe we should uh, know that. Then I prefer the, you know, the Wild West yes. pioneer. Yeah, I, I think all of us. <laughs> Back to our own Paul society. But it, it's interesting because uh, you could conceive of, look, today they have nuclear plants. And that's not like open source technology. That's guarded by military. Right. All they needed to do if they really had the will to was to make some kind of huge secret big uh, uh, plant thing, put in a free energy device there, power up a city. They don't have to put it in the cars, but they can power up the city and be, let it be guarded by by guards, kind of. They could, in that way, control it. It wouldn't be a terrorist weapon that way. Yeah, it pre- it's predicated on on very, very total control over the society. Yeah. Uh, and, and guarding that secret, um, the intellectual property rights and guarding it intellectually in every way conceivable. And it would also, it would require controlling everyone's computer and everyone's internet connection to know if they're secretly sharing that technological information with unauthorized people. I mean, Mm. particularly since we're moving into an era of soon to be advanced 3D printing. Mm. I mean, it would be at least conceivable or at least possible that ordinary citizens anywhere in the world might be able to download a uh, computer aid design of one of these types of devices and and have a chance of building it. Mm. So so for that to be guarded in the in the future you're looking at among other things a complete control over 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 the internet in every possible way. Total control even more than what we are seeing now. I personally think unfortunately that's the direction that our whole civilization is moving. I think we're we're looking at the end not, not we're looking at the end of freedom. Mm. 
it sounds extreme to say, and I wish I, I had a different conclusion, but I don't. I think that is absolutely the direction we are moving. And it's, it's, um, it's a function of the technology that we live in. Mm. So we're, we're now at the point in our society where we, we live for the tech not the reverse. So we we are organized. We're going to be organized on the basis of too many people for the jobs, first of all. I mean, we're going to have an unemployment revolution. It's already starting to happen. Mm. And and COVID, in fact, the pandemic has accelerated yeah. that uh, to a large degree so that there's just if slash when this economy, the global economy boots back up, are there going to be all of those jobs remaining? A lot of them won't exist and yes, I know, I'm aware, everyone argues, well, with new technology, new jobs are created that we can't imagine. I'm sure that will happen, but are they all going to be available for everyone? And I just don't see that. No, the biggest problem there is that they are crushing, you know, the free market in, yes. in its real sense, you know, like small businesses, That's right. big corporation jobs. Absolutely. Yeah. So small, I couldn't have put it better. The um, small entrepreneurs, which have been the backbone of, of civilization for the past 250 years, that's going away. Mm. And what we're seeing now is a world of a few very large, massive corporations that are integrated with each other into a global security complex. Mm. Um, so, so in other words, we're going to have too many people for the jobs that are available. We're going to have intelligent algorithms taking over more and more jobs. So that what are you going to do with all these people? Well, one thing that will be necessary to do, you can see it's two things. One is a base, a universal basic income for a lot of those people because there will literally be no way for them to survive otherwise. Mm. And then the other thing is if you're getting a, a UBI from your government, that means you are literally a ward of the state. You are controlled by that state and – you can be absolutely certain that they will have every means of getting into your digital life. So they, and plus with the revolution of 5G technology that we're now seeing with all these so-called smart devices in, in your home and everyone's home, that's, that's how it's done. Uh, you literally have not a single moment of privacy for the rest of all time. It's gone. And with no privacy, there's no freedom. And with no freedom, there's no psychological power. So what, what's happened is we're, we're creating – and what, you could look around and see it. We're creating a society that's psychologically accustoming, accustomizing itself to totalitarian control slowly, generation by generation. Mm. And I think so we're, we're actually we're, – we're creating a new form of human. And, and I fear that only when that transformation is complete or cl complete enough that we will see <laughs> – disclosure mm -hmm. so uh, a very controlled form of disclosure of course yeah you you know um, do you know who richard verner is richard verner i don't believe so. yeah he's the one who who launched the concept of quantitative easing uh, he's a he's a genius economist uh, analyzer kind of guy okay uh, now he uh, he's a mainstream dude but he he shocks everybody by proving that uh, it's called in, uh, modern monetary theory and he said something which is taken straight out of alex jones playbook hmm. 20 years ago he said that bank of england and, and this is verifiable, people can check it out, are now supporting UBI on the premise 
that A, it's going to be a centralized blockchain economy, not like uh, anarchy as it is today, like you have different kind of crypto coins. Okay, yes. But that's number one. And number two, in order to uh, qualify to get this UBI, and then it isn't really UBI when it's conditions, right? But of course, they will never give unconditional UBI. That means freedom. <laughs> so in order to do that, this is... This is right. like a, a Christian fundamentalist conspiracy theory. You have to have a chip implanted. And you also have to take vaccines. I don't see what vaccines has to do with this. Oh, of course, I can see it in a more like a conspiratorial aspect. But this is what the Bank of England, the central bank of England, is openly discussing. And that's... That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I had not heard that. No. But that's, that's actually very much in line with... Uh, the other trends that we yep. know are, are the case. That's why I mention it. Unfortunately, uh, I would like to, to dismantle your argument, but I can't. You, I'm afraid you're right. I, I wish that you would dismantle it, honestly. <laughs> I would be very happy. I, I want nothing more than to be wrong yeah. about what I think. Yeah. We should take a break, Richard, but okay. uh, I need your take on uh, one more thing. Uh, back to the Space Force. Yeah. So we have launched some hypothesis about it, but what, what do you think is behind that weird uh, movement? Okay. Well, I think uh, it's there are two two elements to it. So one is one that we spoke about earlier, which is the geopolitical uh, element that is the United States versus other other national competitors that is Russia and China. I think that's absolutely real, and and that would be enough to justify a unified space force. Okay, but I but I would add that there are there is overwhelming evidence for genuine anomalous activity in Earth orbit and beyond. Yeah. In other words, uh, activity that somebody's technology that does not appear to be ours. And I, and I believe that that is true. So I think that w let's call it a UFO phenomenon in space. I think that's absolutely what we're dealing with. In, in some of my other books, um, particularly my second volume of UFOs and the National Security State, uh, I indicated a few of those instances that I think are very well attested to of uh, space-based encounters with ufos so if, if that's true which i think it is then you've got ample justification for a secret space program right there because you've got to find a way to deal with or at least to understand what it is that's out there and you don't want the rest of the world to know about it so you must have a secret space program mm. so i think that's actually a significant element of what's going on and with this unified secret uh, excuse me with this unified space program that Donald Trump recently announced, I think that there's clearly going to be a clandestine classified portion of it that is charged, yes, with dealing with this challenge slash threat slash whatever of UFOs that are out there. One of my video makers sent me a link to a new show that's out. I think it's called Space Force. So they're already starting to, and that's like a comedy thing. They're all start, already starting to trivialize it, which in my book is a step towards whitewashing. Right. Now it's going to be, it's not just Trump that uh, people, especially on the left, think, oh, he's so crazy. He's, he, this is his megalomania. Yes, he's probably a narcissist. He's probably megalomaniac. But this isn't conceived out of his hiney. This is... No, right launched 
right from deeper. It's an old idea. But what you just said presupposes that they need an enemy on Earth. That means that they can't really crush Russia or China because they need them as the dichotomy in order to justify this thing. Dominate space. Well, we have to be someone on Earth they want to dominate it from, right? If they're not playing the alien card. Right. So doesn't that kind of go against the one world totalitarian development? Uh, well, it doesn't right now because right now we're not in one world. We still have a multipolar world where the United States is clearly yeah. uh, in this serious state of rivalry with those two nations, which, by the way, let's just uh, point out Russia and China are not quite exactly unified, but in, in some ways they actually have almost formed a a dual type of a state like they've actually they are integrating themselves with each other in they have no uh, choice that that's right i mean they have no choice as they see it and i think that's probably right but uh, and we don't need to get into all of those details no, no, but no. they are deeply uh, integrated economically first of all like really really closely they've they've tied themselves to each other uh, and I'm assuming militarily, although I don't know as many details of that. But anyway, with Russia and China, they're, they are not under the U.S. system of control. So as of right now, a space force will definitely serve a dual function of of being justified to deal with the Russians and Chinese as well as covertly to deal with any other presence of other beings that are here. Now, if we were to get to the point in the future where the U.S. succeeds in vanquishing any independence of Russia and China, like if that were to happen, which I don't see that happening uh, for a while, then then maybe they'd have to rethink their justification for a space force. But by then, it's going to be in place. And mm. um, th there's always a justification. They can say, well, there's we have to watch out for incoming asteroids or we have to guard against space-based terrorists. Mm. Who the hell knows what they're going to come up with in 10 years? <laughs> now, what, what they will – the thing with Russia, Russia is a real gamble. Ru Russia right now has been fortunate for the past 20 years – to have Vladimir Putin uh, managing that nation. Mm. Like people in the West have very little understanding of just how bad Russia was in the 1990s under Yeltsin when he opened that country up to Western. Oh, it was a looting party. Th that's exactly it. And, and the Russian life expectancy went down by a decade Jeez. during that decade. It was really horrific. Mm. So Putin came in really during a, um, you could almost say it was a, uh, a very cleverly organized move by what was left of the KGB, mm. uh, basically KB, KGB's foreign intelligence unit, which was kind of like their elite group. And they they saw the looting that was taking place in Russia, and they saw that Yeltsin was basically falling to pieces by late 1990s. And they positioned Putin to be acceptable to the Russian mafia also, who were running the country with Yeltsin. And the West. And, uh, absolutely. And so no one really understood just how brilliant Putin was. Mm. And um, he shocked everyone. First, he put an immediate end to the war in Chechnya, which blew everyone's mind. I mean, the West was promoting that war. And then he uh, very quickly ran the mafiosos out of the country. 
mm. and re-nationalized uh, like you know Yukos Oil and a lot of the other major uh, oil industries that were uh, not under Russian government control and he brought them under Russian control and thereby made himself the enemy of the West. But that's what Putin did and he uh, has succeeded in standing against the Western banks ever since. It's been an amazing thing, actually. Mm. So, but here's the thing. That man won't live forever. Maybe another 10 years, maybe maybe 20, maybe he'll be ancient, <laughs> make it into his 80s. But doesn't, isn't he grooming a successor in the shadows? But the question is who? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who. I mean, for many years, it was Dmitry Medvedev who was his number two guy. But see, the thing about Russian politics is you've got the, you've got the, the Russian nationalists, I guess you could say, which would be like that's Putin's party, Putin's group. And then you have the Westerners, which was Medvedev and many others. Mm. So like Putin had to have Medvedev in there because he didn't he never succeeded in completely vanquishing the pro-Western faction. Mm. Because that's just how it is in Russia. So You you also forget the communists and the real nationalists, Shirinovsky factions. Yeah, so he has money absolutely. to balance. Right. It's it's not like America a duopoly yeah. of very good point. But but in terms of orientation, West, you know, one of the fundamental issues is to go West or not to go West, to be friendly to the West or not. Yeah. That That's the fundamental. And so once the day will come when, when Putin is no longer running that country, and then the question is, when he's not, what will happen? And I can guarantee you, you will see many ongoing attempts at color revolution in Russia just has have happened in many other parts of the world. And it will be a, a really important thing to see that development, how that will turn out for the Russians. Yeah, yeah. CIA will, will go ballistic. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, we could have a global uh, politics uh, program, <laughs> <laughs> but we have to we have to try to stick to the. You bet. But this is super interesting. And by the way, yes. Richard is educated in this aspect, right? You're a Russia expert, so you know what you're talking about. Well, I, before I studied UFOs, uh, I spent my whole life thinking I was going to teach history at some American university. So I studied a lot of European international uh, diplomacy, European diplomacy and U.S. national security strategy and a lot of Russian history. Mm. So I don't know Russian language, but I um, read a great, great, great deal of Russian history. So I know it pretty well. So I'm interested in global geopolitics um, very much so. Always have been, always will be. Mm. Yeah. No, it's completely right. When you said uh, the big issue is looking west or uh, east, that's been their issue since day one. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, right. back in time immemorial. For over a thousand years. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all develops. I'm I'm putting my, you know, it's true what they say that uh, when it comes to the interior politics, Putin isn't like uh, the nicest guy you want to deal with. But when it comes to foreign politics... He's doing a lot to stop the Anglo-American uh, oligarch elite. Like, for example, I know you have uh, gene-manipulated food in America. It's not even marked. Yeah, GMO food. Yeah, right. stuff like that. He, he he supports ecological things. He says to he, he tries to make his citizens grow, you know, even their own food in their garden. So there's a lot of good things that, for one reason or another, Russia is pushing and protecting on behalf of the rest of the world. That's right. So it, it all works out somehow. There's still some kind of terror balance when it comes to to issues, global issues that the globalist doesn't have total control over because they don't have China, India, 
Brazil Russia on board. That's right. So well, not Bra- not Brazil anymore. They're a joke, but um, yeah. No, not since 2016. They uh, yeah. they did a kind of color revolution there in Brazil. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Too bad. Too bad they lost. Uh, Dilma Rousseff, I think, was yeah. That's no, I know. Well, not her. I was thinking of uh, the guy they jailed. Um, the guy with the beer. He, uh, he, the one who. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, her mentor. Um, yeah. I can't remember his name. He's very yeah. important. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. But uh, people who know what we talk about know who we're talking about. Good. Should we take a break, Richard? Sure. And fill up or empty your bodies and fill up our cups. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. See you in five. Okay. 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 All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 